Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside of the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Ian Walters, who is CEO and chairman at Portage Biotech. Every so often on our podcast, we get a guest who represents what life is like as a biotech. And our guest today does a absolutely brilliant job of articulating what life is like on that side of the fence. Ian's background is ridiculous in the nicest possible way. Um, He has over 20 years of leadership and expertise in oncology and immunology, drug development, and specializes in the evaluation, prioritization, and innovation of new therapies for the treatment of severe diseases, and he's currently the CEO of Potage. Uh, prior to that, he has spent several years at BMS, where he managed uh, physicians overseeing the international development of almost eight oncology uh, compounds and biomarker and companion di- diagnostics work as well. He was a core member of BMS's strategic transactions group, evaluating and executing licensing agreements, MA clinical collaborations and the company's immuno-oncology strategy. Prior to that, he held positions at PDL Biopharma Inc., Millennium Pharmaceuticals Inc., and Sorrento Therapeutics Inc., leading corporate development, translational medicine, clinical development, and medical affairs. Before entering the private sector, Ian was a lead investigator at the Rockefeller University and initiated advanced immunology research to understand the mechanism of action of several compounds. He received his MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine and an MBA from the Warren School of the University of Pennsylvania. Super impressive guy to say the least. And some of the things that we talk about today to look out for, uh, what Ian learned from his time working with a, a Nobel Prize winning team which is really, really insightful. So certainly listen out for that and make some notes. Uh, Ian was clearly an entrepreneurial spirited guy, albeit from a background that doesn't necessarily produce an entrepreneur. And he talks about how that spirit helps him, uh, you know, launch a clinical trial in just a few months at BMS. And that kind of speed to market and getting drugs to patients is very much at the core of everything that Ian is about. So you'll hear that throughout today's interview. I, I found it really insightful to hear Ian talking about why as a small biotech company uh, with multiple assets at different phases, they build relationships with big pharma companies and where the value is uh, of that down the line. And that's something I'd never really uh, stopped to think about in, in any great detail. He also talks about his business as an incredibly lean biotech company that conserves cash while building value uh, in a period where funding is down and other companies are either being acquired or going pop or just running out of cash very, very quickly. He's clearly a very kind of smart uh, businessman and that comes through from the interview today. We get into a bit of a conversation about outsourcing given the fact that Ian's team is pretty small. He said around 10 people, which is incredible given the amount of assets they've got in development, but they rely very heavily on collaborations and outsourcing. So we go into a bit of detail about that and some of the challenges that he has had in uh, in dealing with uh, manufacturing in particular, which was impacted massively by the COVID pandemic. Uh, he also explains why, you know, getting into small molecule space, which is just where their assets are, has been a real blessing in disguise in terms of 
uh, cost versus a large molecule kind of a, a equivalent. We also cover quite a lot of ground in terms of um, you know the, uh, the the kind of cancer space that they focus on and the existing drugs uh, in the market and why you know there's a real need for something new in the market. What that can mean for a business to kind of be that first to market as well. Uh, beyond that, we also discuss loads of other stuff. It is really really great interview, and for me, it just gives us that um, perspective of the amount of hats a busy entrepreneur that's running a biotech has to wear and just where outsourcing fits within that equation it's such a key aspect to it but they have lots of other things on their plate uh, so please enjoy today's episode thank you as always for listening thank you for my team for putting this together and given its uh, entrepreneurial spirited theme of today's podcast um i encourage you all to pick up a copy of my book the floundering founder and let me know what you think if you haven't reviewed the podcast or shared it or just told us that you love it then please do that too so with that said please enjoy today's episode hey ian welcome to molecule to market hi uh, thanks for having me uh Happy to share a little information about uh, our company and what we're trying to do here. Well, we the, just prior to, in fact, my last interview was with your colleague, Alan Shaw, who is a very popular podcast guest on Molecule to Market. So you have a, quite the act to follow, Ian, but I am confident that you're going to knock it out of the park. So before, before we kind of get into telling us about uh, Potage Biotech and all, all the good stuff that you guys do, Give our listener a bit of the backstory about you and how you ended up in the sector, because you do have quite an interesting background in terms of your medical background and and then your route into industry. So, uh, yeah, give us the highlights in in the backstory. Sure. Yeah, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but uh... all the way, all the way to post college onwards, and that, that would be brilliant. Just because I think it built up a great picture of. I think my observation looking back at you is like you've almost got different phases of your career. And so I think it'd be great to just like touch on a few of those. Yeah, well, I was going to say I grew up working on cars and I was the first person to go to college in my family. Actually got accepted to Juilliard to do music. And my parents said, no pressure. We'll support you if you want to be a musician. Of course, we'd love it if you became a doctor. And uh, <laughs> now I have the honor of saying that I am both a musician and a doctor. So um, I ended up uh, going to medical school and, uh, you know, um, practicing medicine for a short period of time. And I realized pretty quickly that the tools that we had to treat patients were not great in certain cases and that I felt like I could do better. So from there, I went on and did a PhD at Rockefeller in immunology and really tried to work on developing approaches to testing and understanding new medicines. And I did that for a period of time and um, worked with some phenomenal people at Rockefeller who ended up getting the Nobel Prize. And uh, I realized that I was unlikely to get the Nobel Prize uh, myself and that although I loved doing research, I didn't love the funding environment uh, to do that full time. So I, I did pivot again in my career and uh, moved over to the industry side it was a little over 20 years ago, and uh, have been developing drugs ever since. Realized pretty quickly in that role that I didn't like the marketing guys telling me that the net present value was negative for a cure that I was working on. 
So I went back to school yet again and uh, got my business degree at Wharton and really tried to focus on how to prioritize uh, investments in the life sciences. This is something that drove me crazy that the methodology that companies use to determine is a product likely to, to generate profits and should we invest or not. And ever since that time, I've been splitting my time in industry, uh, partly on the drug development side, helping to bring new medicines to market. And I've been successful on that front. I've helped now five cancer drugs get all the way to approval. But I split my time between those efforts and uh, also on the BD side, trying to understand strategy, how to prioritize our investment thesis, how to bring in new technologies, how to evaluate investments, uh, uh, you know, from small biotech companies like the one I'm in now. Uh, and um, really, you know, started to see trends in, in, in the industry that I thought were interesting. And these trends, you know, this was mainly during my time at Bristol-Myers, where I saw, you know, I was in the BD group that would evaluate small biotech companies. And oftentimes when we assessed a particular technology and presented it to our management, the response was, well, that small biotech company doesn't develop drugs the way we do or that small company doesn't have the right data that we need to make a decision on um, licensing or acquiring. So why would we take a risk on some unknown you know, product? We, we'd rather double down on our internal pipeline. And that is where you know a bell kind of went off and, and I came up with the concept of starting this company where I could bring very senior experienced pharma and biotech execs together. Um, we understand how big companies look at technology and we can kind of cut through all the uh, weeds to a certain extent and, and focus on the key data that they would need to want to acquire our products. And in fact, as part of our strategy at Portage, we have very close relationships with the companies that could transact with us. So every um, several months, we reach out to those companies. We talk to both the development and the BD folks about what we're doing with our products. We get feedback on our strategy. We're able to, in, in some cases, adjust our strategy in order to make sure that the data that we're generating is indeed the data that they want to see in order to enter a transaction with us. And they, the nice part about doing that is these pharma companies then have some sense of ownership, right? Because they've helped guide and, and help inform the way we operate so that when the time comes and our data matures, it's a very easy discussion with these companies around entering a transaction. And I'm rambling on and on, so I'll, <laughs> I'll pause. I can let you uh, ask some clarifying questions. Tons of questions, so we'll pause on the portage for the for the minute. And um, you, you mentioned that you worked uh, with a team, obviously that uh, were Nobel Prize winners or nominees. I'm not sure which, but you know, if as you reflect back with that working group, the the people that you worked with there, were there certain things that you learned from being around that kind of cohort that have that have really benefited you in in your career? 
Yeah, so the program I did at Rockefeller was called the Clinical Scholars Program, and it was really designed to educate physicians who want to develop the next generation of medicine, and it's this bench-to-bedside approach or translational medicine. And a big part of that program was bringing in translational scientists from all different medical disciplines. So my area of, of interest and focus was immunology, and you know, we would be exposed to people working in cardiology and infectious disease and all these different areas. And it's quite interesting how this cross-fertilization of approaches, regardless of your therapeutic area or disease, can cross-fertilize and, and open your mind to new ideas. So I would say that one of the most interesting things that I took away from my time there was this kind of openness to the way I think about problems, right? Tend to be so siloed and so focused on our therapeutic area, our discipline and, and so on and so forth, uh, that oftentimes it's, I would use the, the example of a horse with the, you know, the blinders so that they don't look left and right and they focus on the road straight ahead, right? Um, you know, we, we get so focused on our specific area that we don't consider everything else that's going on around us. And I think one of the things that I've always brought with me and has helped me in my career is this open-mindedness to kind of rethink a problem, um, to, to put, a, you know, the white space out there and start to think about things a little bit more broadly than perhaps some of my peers in this area. Um, so I think that's one of the things that Rockefeller really um, emphasized was this notion of, um, you know, open-mindedness, thinking about problems broadly, and trying to leverage, you know, the best of science all around you to kind of advance your particular scientific hypothesis and questions. Genuinely fascinating to get your take on that because I think, you know, I'm aware of the success that you've had, but I'm guessing that those early learnings around among those people have, have been pivotal in some of the big decisions that you've made in the way that you think about problems. And I did note down that, as you mentioned, uh, you know, five cancer drugs to approval, which is an incredible uh, achievement and you know, goes without saying, but congratulations on the, the impact that you've had, I'm sure, on patients all over the world with the work that you've done. And as is, is, is you reflect back on the drugs that have come to market that you were involved in, um, did you, you know, I suppose as they, you know, assuming they happened, you know, one by one, how did your view change of getting a drug approval or I suppose, how did the experience of that process evolve as one, as they, as they kind of sequentially kind of came after each, each other? Yeah. I mean, innovation is, is something that, you know, we need to apply innovation in all the different steps that we take as a drug developer, right? And one of the things that you learn about drug development is, you know, the pharma companies tend to do it very well because they have a process, right? And that process is pretty rigid and um, really reflects the need for pharma to have consistency, right? And processes and, and things in place to ensure that um, they they can deliver. And I'll try to give you an example 
of how that manifests and, and how perhaps a little bit more innovation, creative entrepreneurial spirit can, can change things. So when, when I got to BMS, I think our process for developing a protocol took 12 months from idea of a clinical trial that you want to do to implementation. Now, when I was at Rockefeller, the timeline from an idea to implementation was less than a month because we were an academic. We didn't have the process that a big pharma has and so on and so forth. And look, in this pace that we're in and the environment we're in, we can't afford to delay 12 months to, to develop and launch a new clinical trial. And I think the first trial that I launched at, at BMS was done in three months. And everybody was shocked and amazed that it could be done in three months, right? And that led to me leading a work stream on how do we streamline our activities and how do we become more competitive and, and, and improve the timeline because 12 months is not competitive in this day and age of launching trials, right? So that's where I, I talk about where you need to bring your entrepreneurial spirit, your innovation to try to um, streamline the process. I'm not trying to cut corners. I'm not trying to sacrifice quality, right? But I do want to get drugs to market faster, right? There are too many people that are succumbing from these diseases that we're focused on that we can't afford the luxury of taking our time and, and doing these things over long periods of time because in the interim, there are people dying. So one of the earliest drugs that I worked on and that I uh, did the regulatory filings was Velcade. And at the time, Velcade, I believe, was the second fastest drug ever to approval, from first in man to approval. And if you look at the historical data, it says typically a drug takes 10 years from when it first enters human trials until it's approved. Now, certainly in the oncology setting, while people are, are dying, the FDA is willing to speed that process up. And I believe Velcade was in the three to four year range instead of that normal 10. And, and that was because the organization at Millennium, who was the manufacturer of that drug, was very, very entrepreneurial. In fact, uh, many of the people that I worked with during that time have gone on to lead some of the amazing um, biotech companies in the Boston, Cambridge area. You know, and I, I'm sure I could mention all the names of the companies that people went on to lead that have done incredible things that have continued to bring innovative products to market. But when you have that culture of entrepreneurialism, innovation, and you have a culture where everybody, you know, rolls up their sleeves, does whatever they need to do to get these things done. You have a great product. You have the right type of, of development. And I think that's an important thing, right? You know, how you develop drugs has a huge impact on the timing and so on and so forth. You know, you can speed up this process and you can, you know, translate this innovation into you know, real benefit to society, which is drugs are getting to market faster uh, and and helping more patients. So um, that's really something that I've tried to bring to everything that I've done, you know, from day one uh, back at Rockefeller where I invented machines and I did things faster and I did 
stuff that no one's ever done there. And then I've continued to do that at the companies that I've been at and and really is a, a core principle of how we operate at Portage, which is how can we roll up our sleeves, be innovative, creative, and and try to accelerate the process of getting these drugs to patients and hopefully ultimately to market. And some amazing achievements in that and the the way you described, I suppose, the speed at which you were able to influence that time to market and you mentioned entrepreneurial spirit a couple of times and I suppose one of the things that I find curious about you is you know my wife's a, a doctor a medical doctor um without completely offending her I don't think she has an entrepreneurial bone in, <laughs> in her body um I medical school unfortunately <laughs> yeah so I suppose if I you know you you were a a, a, a medical grad um you mentioned inventor you were in an academic environment and then i'd argue you ended up in quite a corporate environment in a big pharma company quite early on in your career those all sound like blockers to entrepreneurship <laughs> so my question for you is like where does that come from because presumably has that always been there with you is it linked to your family um because it sounds like those environments maybe with the exception of your time at rockefeller are not necessarily conducive to an entrepreneurial spirit, but it'd be interesting to know where that where where it comes from within you personally. Yeah, no, that that wasn't something that was ingrained in my family uh, by any means. Um, but I, I was always a kid that you know I grew up in a very modest home, and um, I had big aspirations. And when I had an aspiration for something, I had to figure out a way to get it if that was something that I wanted. And uh, you know, I'll give you a great example. Um, I was nine year old, nine years old. I wanted my first drum set, and my father said, "Look, I don't have the money to buy you a drum set, but um, you know, I can offer you a job. And if you want to work in the auto shop, you know, I'll pay you a dollar an hour. And if you think you can get uh, save up enough money to buy a drum set, you know, go go for it." And it was one of the things that I, you know, I had my first job at nine and I was hustling, you know, every hour that I possibly could because I wanted that drum set. And it took me four years to save up the money to buy the drum set that I ultimately bought at age 13, which at the time was the best drum set you could buy. And my parents knew at that time that if I really wanted something and I put my mind to it, I'd figure out a way to get it. And, and, and that's really the, probably what drove my entrepreneurial kind of bent. And I've, you know, I started businesses when I was in high school and, and I've always been interested in in novel ways to do things and to build value, whether that's for myself or for others. So I've always had that inside of me. And regardless of the companies that I've been at and the corporate environment, I've tried to bring that kind of focus and discipline to the acts that I did. And I would say at BMS, that was one of the, you know, the speed and the way we uh, think about development of, of drugs was an entrepreneurial thing that I brought. Uh, there were several other entrepreneurial types of uh, programs that I started at BMS. And, you know, in the big pharma space, I, I think in general, they don't appreciate or recruit that kind of phenotype, right? They like people that fit into a nice, neat box, right? Because it's such a big organization, 
uh, they have their boxes and they want people to fit into that that kind of mold. And oftentimes, I could tell you in the clinical development department at BMS, people would spend 20 years doing the same thing. And that's not very entrepreneurial. I mean, in order to really advance, you really have to branch out. You have to do different jobs. You have to interplay with different departments and so on. I I remember back in my millennium days, um, I was uh, recruited by the Monitor Group. And I don't know if you know them, they're a a management consulting firm. And they had an initiative that they called intrapreneurialism. And that's really like sending SWAT teams into these big corporate environments to try to find pockets of innovation and uh, opportunities that are not being developed, uh, partly because they don't have the skill sets, right? Uh, And I thought that was super cool because I saw that being a big pharma, that there's things that big pharma is not doing or not leveraging or not taking advantage of that could be monetized, that could bring, um, you know, advances for the company and its shareholders, but they just don't have the right people or the right energy to be able to take advantage of those. So that was something I was I was very interested in. Uh, ultimately, I didn't go that direction. I, I, I enjoyed developing drugs too much that I wasn't going to give up my passion for for drugs in order to kind of be on the management consulting side and and float around to different companies. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. With that same thread of, I suppose, that passion for developing new drugs, that brings us nicely on to Potage Bio, where you are the CEO and, and chairman. Paint a picture of the organization first and foremost for our, our listener. Tell us a bit about the company and, and and what you guys do. And then I'm going to come back to a couple of things that you mentioned earlier on. But just to start off with, tell us about the company. Sure. So it really stems from my time at BMS. And, and at BMS, I was very fortunate to be involved with you know, bringing in a small biotech called Metarex, which had the checkpoint inhibitors. Again, I oversaw all the clinical trials for the oncology department. So it was very much involved in this revolution in the way we think about cancer treatment, which is called cancer immunotherapy. So for the novice, this is, hey, we're not giving you toxic chemicals with the hope that we can kill some of the cancer before we damage your body. Here, we're trying to boost the body's natural defense to cancer the immune system, right? I don't have cancer today because my immune system found the cancer cells that I developed yesterday and got rid of them. And the concept with cancer immunotherapy is if you could activate this immune process, um, you could potentially cure cancer. And I know that people always say, oh, the big pharma has the cure for cancer and uh, they just don't want to put it out there because they'll lose too much money. Well, that's not the case. These cancer immunotherapies are currently selling billions and billions of dollars, uh, and every major pharma company has an effort in that space now, and we are able to cure um, something on the order of 10 to 30% of different tumor types uh, with this type of approach, and the beauty of the approach is they tend to be less toxic than traditional cancer therapies because we're not giving these really uh, aggressive toxic treatments or just boosting the immune system. So, uh, 
Uh, my last few years at BMS, I was involved on the strategy side of trying to predict where this market was going. Certain Wall Street analysts predicted a $120 billion annual market for these therapies. At 60% of all cancer patients in the developed world will get this type of treatment. Right? So it's huge, huge growth opportunity. And everybody wants to get into it. And one of the interesting things and the dynamics in the market space that really set the, the, the impetus strategically for us to build up a triage was the fact that there was one particular drug, uh, one particular target, which is PD-1 or PDL one depending on the approach, uh, that companies had taken. Bristol was one of the early ones in this. Merck uh, is the biggest player in this space. And... These drugs are truly, truly remarkable and have helped many, many patients. And all of a sudden now, every other company starts developing their own PD-1. And if you look across the U.S. and Europe and Canada, and there's now 14 approved drugs, for all intents and purposes, have the same mechanism of action and are not very differentiated. And that's really a new feature in oncology. You know, when you're trying to develop a new oncology drug, you're really trying to develop something that's more potent than the other therapies or safer. Here, these are mainly what we call Me Too or very similar products. So there's very little differentiation between all these companies' products. And the only way to really differentiate is to have a novel combination. So PD-1 plus another drug. And... Um, it was very interesting because uh, there are a lot of small biotechs at the time, going back eight to 10 years, that were developing um, potential combinations for PD-1 therapy. And um, the big pharma companies were doing deals for billions of dollars to access these products. And I'll give you an example. And this is kind of a business dynamic that I saw from the other side. And I said, look, this is too good to be true. I want to be on the other side, which is, you know, a small company came to us at BMS with the drug that they wanted to combine with our immunotherapy. And for all intents and purposes, it didn't look like it worked. So the Dillinger's team that I was a part of, you know, ultimately recommended to pass. Then shortly thereafter, our big competitor, Merck, did a deal with them. And then our management came back and said, Ian, look, why didn't we do a deal? You know, Merck obviously believes that this uh, drug has promise. And I reminded everybody that, you know, scientifically, we didn't think there was enough data to suggest that that drug was active. And the manager said, I don't care, do a deal. And we did a deal, and AstraZeneca did a deal, and Pfizer did a deal. And, you know, the, the moral of the story is competitive fear was driving this deal activity more so than the strength of the data. Now, you fast forward four or five years later when BMS and all these other companies did randomized studies and the drug was absolutely inert. It didn't do anything. And all these companies wrote it off. And the, the moral of the story here is, look, at the... <laughs> the end of the day, you can't be driven by fear. You have to be driven by the strength of the science. But 
that competitive dynamic and tension is certainly uh, an interesting business dynamic to be in if you're a small company and you have a drug that can potentially augment what these 14 drugs are trying to do and ultimately help the competition. And the competition has worked out that Merck is selling $20 billion of their PD-1. Bristol-Myers is selling $8 billion of their PD-1. And other companies are selling $1 to $2 billion. And, and for all intents and purposes, these are very similar drugs. So why is Merck selling so much more than the others? Well, they were first, they had good development choices, and, and so on. How much are they going to be willing to pay to protect their market share? How much are the competitors going to be willing to pay to try to catch up? So a good example of that is BMS did a deal with a company named Nectar for their IL-2 drug. Uh, it was based on 42 patients uh, of Nectar's IL-2 combined with BMS's PD-1. And the deal economics were roughly $10 billion up front based on 40 patients worth of data uh, on that drug. Why? Because that was the only drug at the time that had significant data in combination with the PD-1. It wasn't randomized controlled data, um, but if BMS had hoped to catch up to Merck, they had to do something bold. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with this story, but you fast forward several years later, and that study was again negative. BMS had to stop the collaboration with Merck, I mean, uh, with uh, Nectar. Nectar is currently trading below cash, um, and, uh, you know, everyone's looking for the next one. But this, this competitive dynamic is something that, uh, as a small biotech, again, with strong uh, connections to these pharma companies in this space, it makes it very attractive for investment. And that's the uh, impetus for us to start in this company. Uh, you asked about our team, and I got so distracted from that. Let me come back to it. Uh, my team is mostly my uh, very experienced colleagues from BMS that had worked in this area, who I convinced to join the effort. Um, and we're relatively small. We didn't follow the typical company formation strategy that many companies do who are venture-backed, which is, you know, they uh, do a large mega Series A round and they hire 40 people. They get an office in the Massachusetts, uh, came, you know, Cambridge area. They go and do a large Series B round. They hire another 40, 50 people. They do a crossover round and an IPO and they have 100 people. Um, look, those companies have done great, right? And we can talk about all those examples. Um, but their goal really is to get to human proof of concept with one of their assets, right? And, you know, we could point to some of these who have been successful in doing that and other ones that haven't. You know, our goal is to get to that same point, human proof of concept with, with clinical stage assets. Yet, I don't need 100 people. Right? We operate semi-virtually. Uh, don't need a lab. Right? We collaborate back from my days of academia working with companies with a, a bunch of different academic collaborators. We get grants. We have a collaboration with the National Cancer Institute where we have a scientist there 
who's working on our products. So with a core group of 10 to 15 people, we can really execute the same amount of work with much less invested capital. I'll pause that that point there because I think it leads me nicely on one of my follow-up questions, which is my observation about your businesses. I would class it as a super, super lean biotech company. You mentioned semi-virtual is, is the phrase. It's unbelievable when, uh, you know, when you look at your pipeline of what assets you've got in the mix for a business of your size, it's really super, super impressive. And, you know, if, as you look at the, the type of company, the venture back businesses that you've described there, they strike me as the types of companies that are in a bit of trouble at the minute where they're, where getting access to funding is much trickier now than it might've been say 18 months ago. My assumption would be you guys do not find yourself in that type of situation whereby you need to raise funds constantly just to pay the bills. You guys strike me as being at the other end of the kind of equation, which is, you know, you'll probably be pretty cash rich and not burning as much cash as, as, as the kind of standard kind of venture backed one that, as you described before, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, so you mentioned my colleague Alan was our CFO, and Alan will tell you if asked him, uh, you never have enough money as a biotech. <laughs> no, I would say that we're not raising money and always in the market and, and engaging. But I will um, confirm that our burn rate is significantly lower than many of our peers. Um, you know, and when you look at, um, you know, we do this exercise as a public company where we engage a compensation consultant and they create a peer group of companies in the similar market cap space with similar uh, assets, the median number of employees in our peer group is 70 compared to ours, which is, like I said, depending on how you count uh, consultants and full-time, you know, closer to 10. We are um, lean from that perspective and that has enabled us to take less money from investors. So when you look at the potential return on investment or return on invested dollars, I think we are in a poised in a position to have a much more significant multiple on invested capital. Um, you know that um, there are you know hundreds of companies now that are trading below cash, right? And uh, we're still trading above cash, right? Uh, and I think it's partly because of our financial stewardship. We haven't taken in a lot of cash and we keep the burn rate low. There's a new metric that I have heard recently, uh, but been put forth from some of the people from RA Capital, which is your burn rate in proportion to your market cap, right? So let's, let's dissect that a little bit. Uh, your burn rate, how much you spend in a year relative to your market cap. And there's many companies who bur whose burn rate is bigger than their market cap, right? So when you think about that, if those companies need to fund for an additional year their operation, they're going to take at least a 50% dilution, right? And you don't really get that ratio down to 20 or 30% until you get to multi-billion dollar companies that have, you know, um, such a high market cap that their burn rate is really only a fraction of that. And, you know, um, 
ours has fluctuated over time. It's been as low as 20% of our market cap or even lower um, at different points during the, the past couple of years, uh, which really give you a sense that, you know, the market puts a, a premium on what we do without us taking a huge amount invested in capital, without us spending a lot of money to try to advance our programs. So that's been the core principle about our, our, our company. And it's really a testament to, I think I, I've said, given my background in medicine and science and business, you know, I can wear many hats and provide input on multiple different processes within the company. And almost everyone else that has chosen to join me in this effort is what I call a multi-purpose player. So um, that really enables us uh, to to not be so siloed, and um, and for us to do a lot with less people and less. And um, so that that's really one of the core features of what we do. And then and, and again, you know, it's not right for everybody. And and I certainly wish we had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. Because I could do a lot more uh, with more capital resources, but to your point, we built a pretty compelling pipeline of assets that I'm really, really proud of. Very diverse, very novel. Uh, we're developing them in a what I would say is the most rapid proof of concept approach that you can do. So my goal is one study. And then either, you know, is the drug, you know, valuable and, and desirable to big pharmas and all the people that we've engaged with to kind of vet, or do we stop, move on to the next one, right? And, and that, that's the key, which is, you know, you want to fail fast if you can, right? Because these things become increasingly expensive and there's nothing worse than doing a study that's non-informative. And then you got to go and do another study that's bigger and more expensive at a much higher risk because you don't know enough about your drug, right? So we want to do what, you know, our first human study has to tell us everything we need to know about a particular drug to either attract the partner or to say, look, um, we don't think that this asset or this target is going to work and we're going to put that one aside and focus on something else. And we're quite fortunate that we have a large pipeline that we can do that. Yeah. I'm conscious we have about 10 minutes left and I, I've got a few more questions I want to, but I mean, this is great insight in, in the way you think about, I suppose, collaboration and, you know, retaining cash. So a, a lot of our listeners operate in the, I suppose, the outsourcing space where they are there to provide services for biotechs just like you the dream client in fact is a virtual biotech like you because the way you describe it that you outsource quite a lot albeit appreciate you have some academic relationships there as well but how do you think and navigate say cro and cdmo relationships where you are building i suppose uh, the partnerships with outside vendors that can help you guys get to market quicker how have you found that experience i suppose as a small biotech versus your time at BMS? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most frustrating uh, aspect is manufacturing. And it turns out that a couple of our technology platforms share uh, a lot of features with the COVID vaccines, right? So um, 
you know, here we are, a, a relatively small company with a relatively small spend, and we need the services of the companies that are being pulled by Moderna and Pfizer to make COVID vaccines. Um, so we certainly suffered a little bit from from that aspect of not having control of manufacturing. Um, you know, some companies, if they raise hundreds of millions of dollars, can have more control over the manufacturing process. Uh, we didn't. We didn't raise hundreds of millions of dollars, so we rely on um, contract manufacturers. And I would say that's been one of the most challenging things. And it, I don't think it had to be challenging, except for the fact that no one predicted that the COVID pandemic would require a liposome technology, and that's something that we utilize with some of our products. So I think we were somewhat disadvantaged by that unpredictable situation. You know, but what we try to do is align our contracts with these groups so that it's a win-win for both, right? Where they can, you know, do better if they exceed uh, their goal, uh, which makes them aligned with our interests in trying to get these drugs as quickly as possible made. You know, one of the things that has happened by chance, because we've, uh, you know, we have antibodies, we have small molecules, we have all kinds of different technology, is that our lead for drugs that are in the clinic are all small molecules. Um, which is very helpful because, I mean, if you need to produce an antibody, you know, it's an 18-month process. It costs, you know, roughly 7 to $10 million to make antibodies and to do the proper toxicology and whatnot, whereas the small molecules we can make in a matter of three to six months, right, at a fraction of the cost, which is, is really, um, it wasn't, you know, a strategic imperative when we started this, oh, we got to go out and find small molecules. But, you know, we've, like I said, took a very broad look at what what's out there and what we think has promise. And it turns out that the lead drugs that we have all share that feature, which is another reason why we can be lead. I could tell you if we had four antibodies that we put into the clinic, we ha would have had to raise twice the amount of money that we've raised so far. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really interesting to hear about, I suppose, the the benefit of having a small molecule pro product versus <laughs> the kind of complications that it, it creates for you. And you mentioned earlier on, right at the start, actually, when during your introduction, and I wanted to rewind back and bring it to where we are today, which is you talked about part of your role is to build relationships with big pharma companies that could be I suppose they help you with guidance, but also that could be future uh, acquirers of your assets or indeed, I'm guessing, of, of the company. So I suppose on the the day after, and just to kind of give the timing of this, that Pfizer uh, announced publicly an absolutely monster acquisition of, of over $40 uh, billion in the cancer therapy space. How do you think about... I suppose the future of the business in terms of you know building those relationships and what it might look like for Portage go, going forward. Yeah, that's a great question, and and Pfizer has certainly taken advantage of all the revenues that they've received from uh, COVID vaccine to go out and do deals. And one of the deals that Pfizer did was a bond a company that we helped start called Biohaven in the neuroscience space. Um, 
So we 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 love that Pfizer is is out there doing deals uh, in multiple different therapeutic areas, and um, you know, for us, it's you know when we started the company for you know five six years ago, um, people were really doing early deals on drugs that hadn't been in the clinic, and a lot of those deals blew up, and it was partly because, and we talked a little bit about this, that money was cheap. Right, so companies were getting, raising tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. And we're doing all kinds of things that I would say were high risk, high reward, and many of those high risk programs proved to be failures, which is what you would expect in a high risk program. And 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 nowadays, companies have had to um, really dial it back. So uh, and and we see this all the time that the pharma companies. I'm more than happy to wait until you have more data. Now you need clinical data. Um, before they jump in, they realize they're going to have to pay 10x what they could have paid for an earlier stage asset. And I worry that that is becoming even more challenging, you know, in the face of some of these failures, like the Nectar story, where they had 42 patients. And, um, you know, that they obviously was a very big deal financially that didn't plan out and that pharma's gonna wait for more data and in the case of our our drugs with biowave and they waited not only to the drug was approved but until it had commercial sales and they could see the sales trajectory before they stepped in now i think the cancer space is different than the migraine space which is what biohaven's commercial product was um a lot because of of what we discussed earlier this kind of lack of differentiation um, out there amongst the PD-1 drugs that are currently marketed. So that's why I think it's really important to understand the bar. And that's a lot with our conversations with these companies, you know, previously. I mean, in fact, we, we had these conversations before we even licensed technology in. So we knew how the big pharma companies are looking at that particular mechanism and what they would need to see in order to want to enter a transaction. So um, the bottom line is, uh, you know, you, you kind of know what data, you know, you need to, to, to get people to enter a transaction. I think it's helpful to build alignment in advance of that data, right? And that's kind of what we do. That's our homework. That's why we engage with these companies on a regular basis. So, uh, you know, they're aligned and we're aligned on what, what good looks like. And then it's just a waiting game. Right. And I presume it's that alignment piece is almost, I suppose, showing them under the covers a little bit, giving them an insight into the types of things that you guys are working on and also just to build that relationship. So, as you said, when the time's right, it's not, it's not a first date, right? There's, there's, you, you've built a, a relationship. There's a story there, and the, you've got the data to back, which I presume puts you in a, a stronger position if an acquisition takes place in the future, which kind of makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, and we haven't talked a lot about our corporate structure, but we're structured in a way that kind of each IP is packaged separately, and it's, it's sort of nicely packaged up for a company to come in and acquire an individual asset or an asset platform for us. And, um, 
you know, we're always willing to, to listen to offers, right? Right. And if we feel that we get an offer that represents the value of, of, of the technology or the product, you know, we're going to, you know, be in, inclined to engage. Um, if we don't, we're willing to take the product to the next level uh, to, to make that happen. And um, I mean, I think that's important. I think that was kind of, you know, the strategy that Biohaven followed, right? They had got the drug, had a successful phase three program, was submitting their um, their new application to the FDA, and they ran a process. And at that time, the pharma companies were not offering what everyone believed the true value of that asset. So they said, thank you very much. We're going to take it to the next level. And they were able to launch the drug and outcompete some of the bigger players, even as a small startup. And um, the offers that came in after that uh, were much higher and, and represented what everyone believed the true value of, of that asset. Um, I don't think we're going to have to do that on the oncology side, just to be clear, but it, it's the same type of strategy. You never want to be in a position where you need a pharma deal in order to move forward, um, but you're always happy to entertain offers should they arise. And that's, again, another one of those reasons why you constantly engage with the, these folks. And, and, you know, if they want to make an offer, they can make an offer. No, it makes sense. And final question to, to wrap up what has been a, a really terrific interview. You know, as we stand here today, I, you know, in uh, mid-March, we're just, you know, topically, we've just seen the a collapse of uh, the Silicon Valley Bank in the US. We're obviously still feeling the effect of the slowdown in terms of the capital market uh, from a biotech perspective. What do you think the future looks like for the industry? Uh, you know, is this a concerning time? Is this an uncertain time? Or are you seeing a sense of, you know, shoots of, 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 of green shoots of confidence for, for the future? Yeah, I think it's going to be a bumpy year for us. Um, I, you know, looking at the economic indicators that were just came out today, and and uncertainty about uh, inflation and rising uh, interest rates, uh, I think what we're hearing from the investment community is a lot of the um, generalists are still hesitant to get back in the market. And um, you know, we talked about all these companies that are either trading below cash or uh, trading. Uh, below their burn rate and are going to need to raise capital in, in this same time frame. And you're seeing companies um, either shutter and go out of business. You're seeing companies merge. You're seeing all, all kinds of of things happen that you know we haven't seen in a long time in the market that tend to be more frothy. So I think we're going to continue to see consolidation. Um, I think you're going to continue to see what I would call punishing financings, which is uh, companies that are desperate for capital and don't have a lot of alternatives and funds are getting greedy and they're going to say, look, if I'm going to give you capital, uh, it's going to be at my terms, which typically includes structure and warrants and, and things that are, are heavily diluted. And... Um, you know, despite the great news of these two big acquisitions that were announced this week, um, I, I do think that these other macroeconomic uh, factors are going to keep the sector as a whole um, down. So uh, my prediction for this year is still going to be um, 
a lot of, of turmoil. My hope is that we could turn it around sooner rather than later and that the economic numbers will get better and people will start getting back in the sector because there's a lot of good deals right now, companies that are undervalued that have potentially transformational medicines. So I would love to see that those companies succeed and uh, that the enthusiasm for our industry to kind of change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a, it's a great note, uh, a positive one to end on, Ian. Uh, and what a pleasure it's been to have you on the podcast. Um, I think for many of our listeners who are in, you know, either on the biotech side or in the outsourcing vendor side, I think having the perspective of someone with your experience and that is very much on the, you know, the cold front of, the cold face of, uh, you know, running a lean biotech is, is super, super interesting. And to kind of, there's a piece of empathy there for to get a feel for how many hats you wear and all the things you have to consider as a CEO. So thanks for your honesty, your authenticity, and just for, yeah, for your uh, bringing your story to life on Molecule to Market. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And, and, uh, Clearly, if anyone has interest in, in our company, I suggest they go to our website, uh, www.portagebiotech.com, um, and uh, learn a little bit about our science. Unfortunately, we didn't have much time to go through our our interesting products that we've put together, but I'm really excited about their potential and this field of getting immune responses in settings that have been very difficult to do so. I absolutely encourage our listener to go check out the website i i have done a couple of times and it's amazing to see how many assets you've got in development and uh hey maybe we do a take two in a year or two ian and when you either get one of your drugs to market or you sell one of your assets and either way i, I can only see exciting things ahead for your business thanks of course always happy to get back on another one hi again thanks for tuning in to today's show i really hope you enjoyed the episode for more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization, you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.